This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there. This is Matt Leggetti, your favorite comic book yeti. Did you know that if enough people listen to this podcast, advertisers give us money? Money we can then use to, say, pay our journalists. It's wild. Totally unrelated, we make this podcast using Anchor by Spotify. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Even Grant can do it, and he's a grandpa when it comes to technology. Love you, Grant. Let me fill you in on what some of us in the industry call reasons to believe. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcast, and more, and they make it super easy. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor's totally free, which is great when you're, say, a comic book journalism website who lives on donations and boyish charm. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. And hey, I love you. You are listening to Into the Comics Cave with your host, comic book heartthrob, Grant Stoy. Hello, and thank you for joining us today for a second time. Greeting. Greeting my buddy. Because uh, Grandpa Grant doesn't understand technology that well. <laughs> Push the uh, red button. The red <laughs> button. He is the author of Gun and its follow-up Slaughterball. And he's just a very kind person to anyone who wants to talk shop. Let's welcome Jack Foster. Hello, Jack. Ooh, he's my favorite. <laughs> it's funny because he actually brought an audience sitting behind him. <laughs> I always do. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> and not just to like these, you know, to the bar, wherever, you know. Like, <laughs> You know, it's a real confidence booster when you have your own in-audience uh, uh, falling around. Would you call that a coterie of... Uh, of? Is it a coterie play? or an entourage? 
I don't know. So uh, um, I always thought of a coterie, like I, it may not be in the meaning, but I always thought like sex is going on somewhere. Well, you know what? I can't see what's going on below your shoulders. So <laughs> that's where all my best sex happens. <laughs> well, now that that's out of the way, uh, <laughs> what a racy Foster. podcast! I had no idea. <laughs> it's rated T for Teen. Uh, <laughs> Jack Foster, where did you grow up again? <laughs> <laughs> the second time I grew up. Uh... <laughs> So I grew up in Florida in a kind of sleepy beach town that is slightly, uh, I, I went there recently. I had to, a friend of mine, uh, their mother passed away, very sad. So I had to return home. She still lives in St. Petersburg, the city I grew up in. Oh, so I had yeah. that sort of, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> no, you know what? <laughs> More right on, I actually know what, <laughs> what town that is. That's kind of by Tampa Bay, correct? It is. No, it is. It's the um, it's the little peninsula that sticks off and then Tampa Bay separates it from like the main um you know, the mainland peninsula of Florida. Uh, and not to alienate any of your Florida listeners. because, But, you know, when you grow up in a place, you can have a very special kind of um, hatred and resentment for it from familiarity. Oh, yeah. And just like Florida was never really my my gym. Although I do, I guess, like a thing that I did learn later, I moved to Boston, uh, where you live, mm-hmm. following you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Closely. Your bed is made if you want to step up. Hey, is that three kids in a trench coat or is that Jack? <laughs> I went to Boston, which is as far, like, like it is as far away from Florida as you can, you know, like it's snowy and there's seasons and progressive people okay. aren't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, like it really, like I, I loved Boston, but uh, those, those like six months of winter are really, it's not the, like the cold, I'm built for cold, so that's fine. But like the darkness, just the sort yeah. of like it gets dark at three and like. And if you have a rainy summer, like that's it. You get no, like you have a year of, of, of bleakness. I was really spoiled by the beach, I think. And then that was what sort of led me to California because I was like, okay, like Massachusetts isn't the right fit. Um, and I don't want to go back to Florida, but like I hear California has sunshine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then I got here and it was like, it really was love at first sight. Like the minute I got off the plane, I was like, wait a minute, this is it. And then like, I am a slow walker. I'm an ambler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nothing drives people on the East Coast crazier than someone walking slowly near, around, behind, or in front of them. <laughs> Can confirm. <laughs> it, it infuriates people. I, I, I like when there's people out here. They wear flip flops. They can't walk fast. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, that's a really good point. You know, the, everyone's a slow walker. I just like I felt like I was a letter sent to the wrong address. And then when I got to California, I was like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. And like, yeah. true love ever since. Did you go directly to L.A. or did you live in any other places in California? No, that? directly to L.A. I had a friend. So literally in Boston, I, I, a good friend of mine in Boston, his sister lived in L.A. And I was just sort of like, I just don't know if I can do another year here. I was like, hey, would your sister mind if I just moved, if I just moved in? No. <laughs> <laughs> Went to visit for like a week and just got a feel for the city. And she ended up being like, it was, she was a great host. Uh, she knows, she knew the city very well. So she was able to sort of direct me in a lot of ways. And I tell the story a lot. Uh, it's <laughs> So I did a short story in Beyond Sunset, this anthology that came out just a few months back, which is, it's sort of like a near, <laughs> near sci-fi story or near future story, like a different protagonist than myself, uh, like a, a lady. But really it's my story. Like it was just like what it was like coming to Los Angeles, falling in love with the city and just sort of like knowing in your heart of hearts, like, I belong here. Like finding that you belong to a city where you cannot find an apartment to rent. Oh, <laughs> no. 
Well, I mean, I think like, you know, like every every true love story, like, you know, if if the if you meet your 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 one true love and everything works out perfectly, that's not a very interesting story. So like, okay. you know, like my love affair with Los Angeles, you know, there's always reasons that contrive to keep us apart or you know, to get in the way and then they're overcome and and you know that love is is just renewed when you finally like when I finally got that apartment, like it was like the universe harmonized for a second. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh no, uh, uh so I I came out to visit for a week. Uh I cried driving back to the airport. Like I was just like, I know this is where I'm supposed to be. And then six months later I was um I was installed. Uh Although it was tricky, it was hard getting an apartment uh, that I could afford, and but all that is kind of documented in that short story, Last Angeles. So if you're interested in that, um, check that out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really curious. You have this beautiful art color or watercolor star style for your art. When did you fully embrace that? Did you? Because I've seen some of your pencils and inks, and it's really good. <laughs> but just there's something about your watercolors that's amazing. Well, I um, I'm old. So, <laughs> you know, I started working, you know, in, in pencil, in real pen, or not real, you know, genuine pencils and genuine inks in, in analog in the real world. And one of the things that I, um, you know, like I read comics, comics made me, like, I started drawing by tracing over comic books. Oh, yeah. You know, tracing Zatanna, you know, um, and I went to a high school art magnet school. When those started, like, those were the first crop popping up at, at the time yeah. and like my portfolio was all comic book stuff and then you know the art teachers were like this is not <laughs> you won't be doing any of this uh, <laughs> but um so like um i think i had sort of like i didn't have a style i was just imitating you know george perez and arthur adams and the people that i like but like had gotten sort of better at sort of like penciling and then inking over that never really good at inking and then sort of like you know doing what i think you see in traditional comics but i i really loved Gosh, uh, um, it's like one of those things like you hear like somebody, a musician talk about like, oh, the first time I heard Bruce Springsteen, and I was like, oh, no, this is how I want to make music. So like some some guy in my art, oh, I don't even remember anymore. One of the other artists, he had drawn a picture of Grendel. Remember Grendel? Oh, the Matt Wagner Grendel? Yeah, Matt, Matt, Matt Wagner. Um, so he'd drawn Grendel and he had that like purple ripped up like uh, cloak around him and he had watercolored it. And just the look of the purple in watercolor and it was sort of like semi-transparent and it was like, it was only pencil. It wasn't inked. And I just like, I saw that and like, like my heart, the butter of my heart melted in the pan. I was like, I want to do that. And so um, as soon as I like started working with watercolor and like started like painting the, like I would ink something and I would paint it. And uh, I really liked like what was happening, but I also, I didn't want to just be a colorist. Like I didn't want to just color my own inks. You know what I mean? Like I, 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 the more you get into watercolor, the more you see like, oh, there's, like all these fantastic things that the medium does and it is different from oils and, and acrylics and like there are other effects that you can sort of get that they can't and and it's a weird but beautiful medium like I, I, so like i thought like learn to become a, a watercolorist like a like you know landscapes and the things that you i used to paint a lot of fish <laughs> just paint lots of tropical fish underwater which lots of i mean not hard to find if you google watercolor <laughs> but i thought like you know that kind of taught me how to like how to use the medium and how to like you know because it's like uh, a lot of a lot of uh, balls are in the air there's the paper how the paper interacts how, so how much water you use versus hue and um so like i i really consciously tried to over time become a um a very 
like a solid watercolorist and then use the effects of what, you know, make watercolors, like make paintings, you know, like they can sometimes look like regular comic books because it's, you know, just because it's easy to do comic book art and then watercolor, but like um, to not just rely on that, you know, to, to make it like a substantial painting. And does that answer your question? Yeah. And it seems like trying to make an amalgam of the two, like comics and watercolor that can, the results are beautiful, but I can imagine it can be pretty frustrating at times. I mean, early on it was, but I, I have to say like, I mean, I was an unsophisticated uh, artist. I didn't, I went to that high school, but I, I then did not follow art as a, you know, I didn't continue studying art um, in an education based way. So I would see things like I, I, around that time, like I think Dave McKean um, started like making, you know, his phenomenal Sandman covers. And I understood that they were painted and, and I kind of understood like there was a lot going on in there. And I wanted to make stuff like that, but um, he, was, he was, you know, I think in some instances, I think if you go to the Black Orchid uh, miniseries he did with Neil Gaiman, like there's a lot of washes and watercolors in that and acrylic washed down to a very thin. So you could look at it and think this feels watercolory. But he was also, you know, he was also using collage and photography and, and oil painting. And I wasn't always educated enough to know the difference between those things. And I knew I wanted to work like that, but I was also mm-hmm. pushing watercolor to do things that it doesn't do. Um, and this is going to be very inside watercolor. <laughs> Did like, bring it out. So it's a very like it's a it's a transparent medium, you know. So like the more of the paper that you see underneath it, and the, in particular the way the sort of like layers and layers of hues applied over each other create capture the light inside it in a way that makes parts of it sort of feel radiant, you know, uh, in comparison to other parts. Whereas oils and acrylics are like opaque. So you, you you put a layer and then you can put another layer over it and you can put another layer over it and you never see the underlayer. Whereas in, tro- in watercolor, you're trying to see the underlayer. In fact, you want to keep as much of the actual paper. Like you don't use white. You just let the paper be white, which is you have to like, it's not easy <laughs> you yeah. have to work to it. You know, a lot of these effects that I was seeing in Dave McKean's work and other work, you know, um, you know, like it's very murky and, you know, it's a lot of like, it's built around darkness, which is easy, easier to get with like layers, but very difficult to get with. Like for one thing, like the paper, watercolor paper absorbs a lot of the, the pigment. So like once you lay down, you know, um, a color, it, it dries, you come back in 45 minutes and like the color is now like half the saturation that it was. So like, you know, frequently you have to like really like put a lot of, um, uh, put a lot of, paint on there in multiple layers over time to finally get those like if you want really rich really deep colors and um that was what i was going for i wanted things to look like they were sort of like rising up out of the murk or like you know if it was an underwater scene you can barely see like the image or, or whatever and it was just murky throughout and i think a lot of people don't do that in watercolor or, and would not suggest to do it because it's not the easiest way and not maybe not the best medium for it but because i wanted to sort of get those effects and these were the tools that i had um, I think it pushed me to work in watercolor in a way that it, it, you know, like it doesn't. And I think that that is great. I think especially when you're young and you don't know what you're doing and you're trying to figure it all out, like that's when you should experiment and that's when you should make mistakes and get things wrong. And I think like, you know, like if you start like banging on a violin and try to make it a percussive instrument, no, it's not the thing the violin mm-hmm. does, but that doesn't mean you don't yield something interesting, you know, by, by looking at it through different eyes. So um, to answer your question, it was frequently frustrating. Uh, and I was like, uh, I think banging my head against the wall, trying to get it to do things that it wasn't natively good for. But I, I'm really glad of that now because I think that affected my style. And I think like, um, I think it, I, I think that adds to like, 
I think people who look at my comic think like, well, this looks different from other comics, but mm -hmm. I think watercolorists who look at my work think, oh, this looks different than other watercolors. And like, I'm glad, I'm glad for that. I'm really happy to have that sort of like, you know, like the, like, you know, it's like, you know, if you go to an extreme temperature, <laughs> like you get extreme results. And I think that that's good for art, you know, it helps me get distinctive. You mentioned McKean. Are there any other artists or creators that you feel played a big part in your development as a creator yourself? Tell me if you feel the same way, but like, don't you think you go through like crushes and like, you know, for like a year, like your, your main crush is Bill Sienkiewicz. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like a year, the next year it's like, it's a writer. And then the next year it's another artist. And then you like, you know, like you go through this phase where you're like, I'm mad about Paul Smith X-Men, you know, <laughs> you go through another phase yeah, where you're like, absolutely. I'm mad about John Byrne pencil, you know? So like, I think like all of them, you know, like I think everyone you really respond to, they're all like, there's a little something you get from each of them. Uh, and, but I also like, I think you're gonna, I'm gonna like shop talk with you. I think it's really hard. Like this will probably be a question you ask most of the people you interview. Like, you mm -hmm. know, I think people are very guarded about their influences. Like A, they have pat answers. I always have answers like, you know, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so, which is sort of like, Okay, that's a gimme, but yeah. they're not the actual answer. <laughs> I think people are very guarded about those things, and I think artists in particular do not like to share who they're influenced by because it's a very like it's a it's a weirdly personal question, and and also a little you know it's freighted because like this is also a person you owe a debt to, you might feel resentment towards you, <laughs> you know, like you have a complicated relationship with uh, internally whether you've ever interacted with them or not, and then I also think like. I think we're not always super plugged into who our influences are. Like, I think there are obvious ones. Like if you look at Phil Jimenez and you look, you're like, well, clearly you really respected it and took in a lot from George Perez. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I think he would be like, yeah, totally. But then there are the ones that I don't think we see, you know, like in a lot of Phil Jimenez penciling, you can definitely see the George Perez um, influence. But when he's inking, who, who is influencing his inking style? Cause it's a lot more, it's a lot more in the sort of Klaus Janssen, school the Dennis Cowan school rather than um George Perez inking is very neat and I think the, the pencils are certainly neat but Jimenez's inking seems to be of a different style which is great so only to say and I this is speculation I don't I don't he Jimenez may say like oh it's totally Perez all the way through you dumb dumb <laughs> <laughs> or not you know or whatever or, or I hate inking you know? so to answer your question I think it's a fascinating I guess what I'm saying to you is I think it's a fascinating question to really try and like swat away what people say first because that's going to be uh, a little pat and then they like try to get into the stuff that they may, may not are not fully aware of themselves because like influence is such a you know like as as a writer you have the same thing you know you read something and you're like oh i want a thing i read to, to read scan the page like this does or, or you have stuff that like makes you feel you know like oh if i could do that if i could mm -hmm. pull these tricks off or whatever and then a kind of a, a B part to this question, I think, is... Um, is this where you admit, like, who your actual influences is? Absolutely are? not. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. <laughs> no, but I think, like, a thing I heard from an interview with the actress, Jodie Foster, she was uh, she started making films, she was a director for a bit, and she was sort of talking about movies that she likes, you know, like, oh, these are the movies I like to go see, and these are the movies that I make, and they don't have to be the same thing. I, maybe that is obvious to everyone, but the minute I sort of like understood that, because like there are the comics that I love to read, there are the comics that I love, and then there are the comic, the, the comics that I make, 
And like, I always thought that like one had to match the other. And I didn't realize that they could be wildly different, yeah. you know? And I think that that, I think that like, I think people are not always consciously aware of, I find this more with writers than artists personally, although, you know, everyone else may have a different experience, but like, I, I think a lot of writers are trying to write the stories that they read and sometimes maybe not the stories that they're naturally considered writing. Yeah, uh, I, read this, that. I read this book by George Saunders about the writing process. I think it was called Four Ponds, something, something Four Ponds. And he takes a bunch of uh, Russian novel short stories and goes through them and then sort of analyzes them after. It's like taking a writer's workshop with George Saunders. We discussed this in our chat that we're in with um, our good friend, Dylan Gilbertson. Wait. Also a writer. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Did I just drop that name? <laughs> Let me just bend over and pick that up. Oh, tuck that back in my pocket. He sort of like, he just out of the box, George Sunder, great writer, wanted to be um, like an Ernest Hemingway type. He wanted to write these, you know, short clipped, slightly macho, you know, like um, just, you know, bereft of any extra words or adjectives, short stories. And then, you know, like, He's sort of a brilliant satirist and funny as hell. And I think the minute he started like letting himself be funny, you know, he realized, oh no, this is the kind of writer I am. I'm a Mark Twain, not a you know, Ernest Hemingway. And like, and then of course, like that's when his work opened up and it's totally brilliant. But I think like he had to let go of the, that sort of anxiety of influence and ease into just being who you're listening to your own voice, hearing it, making it bigger, stronger, louder. And so I think like Influence is also complicated because of that thing of like, we're struggling to make the thing that we see in our head that we're supposed to be doing, but what we are actually doing isn't necessarily that. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, yeah. Does that make sense? Or is that? <laughs> well, it's, it's fun that you talk about influence because I wanted to talk about inspiration now. Do you, when you're working, do you have mm -hmm. anything music playing or TV in the background or anything? Or are you just silent sounds of the world? No, silent sounds of the world. I think I want to meet that person. <laughs> <laughs> I want to meet that I, psychopath. I think they're crazy. Uh, I think, um, you know, writing, uh, I don't think you can listen to words. Like, I think if you're listening to, um, or, you know, like a story or something and you're trying to write, like, there's like, they're bouncing off each other. And oh, yeah, hard to agree. Um, but when you're, when I'm painting or when I'm drawing, I totally can listen. So, like, um, I think listening to music is, uh, some artists do, uh, I feel like you're spending so much time drawing it's very easy to go through your entire music out. Like if you played your iTunes, it's like maybe a week's worth of music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's very easy. Like, you know, that's one week out of 52 that you're working. So it's very easy to get sick of your music. If, you know, like, so I, I like to listen to audiobooks and, um, and podcasts like this one. Um, and I think the sweet spot is when you're sort of like, you're working on page, it's going well. And then at the same time, you're listening to something and you're sort of like, you know, like I think both halves of your brain are engaged and then just hours pass and you get a lot of work done, um, which is fantastic. Uh, I sometimes, I make playlists that I listen to, which is sort of like, oh, this is like, you know, like I told you the um, Slaughterball is meant to be sort of exploitation movie-ish. So I was listening to a lot of like music in that genre and then synthwave and like there was just like a, a, yeah, yeah. a feel that I wanted and the music matched the feel, which isn't always the case, but in this one, it was pretty solid. So there was the music that I was listening to when I was making it, but then I also make playlists <laughs> <laughs> which is meant to be the soundtrack. And I don't mean like, oh, this is the music I was listening to while I made it. I mean, no, when you read the scene, this is the music. Yeah. And I, I know nobody who's reading the book is actually, you know, queuing it up and like, okay, well, page two. But I do, like, that is how I intend for it. 
And uh, if I was, I wish you could actually go into Spotify and be like, start the song at 20 seconds. Which is in this case, just make a movie. But, um, uh, but I like that too. Cause I, 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 um, I think it was Scud, the disposable assassin. They oh, used yeah. to do. Yeah. Fa- that, was that from the mid early nineties? Nineties, 96, I think. Oh, wow. Maybe, maybe 94. I might have it. Um, but around that time. And then mm-hmm. he would, at the end of the book, he would put like, um, these are the voice talents you should be using. Like this actor should when you think of Scott, I think oh, Scott was John Malkovich. And so like, I think that stuff, like it's, it's, it's Easter eggs. It's like bonus content for the DVD. I think it's like, uh, is it all that matters is the comic, just read the comic, but there's other stuff that's there. I think like it, it's fun for the reader. I, I, as a reader, found that stuff fun, and I like to like participate in that tradition. To kind of change gears right now, uh, would it be fucked up to see a gingerbread man eating a cupcake? Let's break it down. A pastry eating a pastry, but is... All right, two things. First of all, is the <laughs> gingerbread man enchanted, like Frosty the Snowman? You yeah, know, like, I think oh, yeah, magic that would icing. have to be the case. Then, like, what does he care? Like, he's not... I, I'm not a base cupcake anymore i'm beyond that so no it's not upsetting for a gingerbread man to eat a cupcake is my answer yeah do you think that the gingerbread man is purposefully avoiding the fact that he is consuming his own material like he's putting aside his more mortality because he can quite easily be devoured i hate to tell you this grant (laughs) what are we doing when we eat chicken (laughs) i mean Chicken's good. <laughs> I think that's what the gingerbread man is saying. Like, oh, this muffin's great. So well, he's viewing smuffin. other pastries as like completely different species. I think it's like, yeah, I think he's sort of like it's cognitive dissonance. Like, if you like, I love a good cannibal story, and a cannibal yeah, who story, it? yeah, who does it right? Exactly. A cannibal story is always sort of like not always, but nearly ninety percent of the time, it's a like it's a tacit rebuke of mm. eating animals because you're like how could you eat this person's person's a living, breathing, thinking thing? And you're like, what's a pig? (laughs) But also, also delicious. Yeah. (laughs) So would it only be fucked up if he was eating a gingerbread, gingerbread man cookie? I mean, I think that is um, of the two stories, like the one where he only eats gingerbread man cookies. Like that character is a lot more interesting because like he, (laughs) like something's going on. (laughs) <laughs> thank you for indulging that uh, now jack we're at a point where i'm going to start asking you some questions we're going to ask every single person on this this show oh i love these i i love these although i wish i had been one of the people um who knew the questions it had been you know like i feel like everybody <laughs> who watched the first season of inside the actor studio had their answers prepared <laughs> for when they got to be a guest <laughs> Whereas the first people were like, uh, "Give me a second. Yes, go. On. This is great. I can't wait to. I can't wait to hear the other replies. Yeah, this is gonna get James Lipton right in your face. Number one, what is your favorite comic sound effect? Oh, uh, that's such a great question. Um, my favorite. Oh, you know what? I don't know if it's like a memorable. I'll say my. I don't know if it's my favorite, but a memorable sound effect is from Grindel. Who knew it would pop up again? Wow. Um, There was this sort of like person getting uh, just eviscerated, I think cut in a just vicious way. And the sound effect was glorch. G-L-O-O-O-R-T-C-H. And then the blood, the blood was red and then like limbed around the edge of it was like a a bright green. 
and I, 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 my my friend, I remember saying like, "That's this other fluid that, that comes out with blood," and like we were just thrilled. Like, because like I don't know if you recall, but this was a mature. It was one of the first for, suggested for mature readers books I had ever seen. Like, I didn't know the comics came with that label, and I was like, "What is this?" And then we we looked, and it was a gorge, and then the blood was like like um, you had this green outline around it, and. I was like, this is violence on a level I've never seen before. <laughs> and that's when you lost your mind. Yeah, that is that is what I like. That is when I lost my mind. What is something about the medium of sequential art that you love? This is a hard one to answer. Um, that's a attempt to buy more time. Like, don't I, worry, I we'll fix it in post. Because <laughs> there are just so many. Uh, I and I, I feel like a common comic book stance. Like I think a, like a thing that a lot of comic book creators like to say is like, "I'm here to make comics. I don't care about movies." Which I think is I. It's genuine when anybody. I believe it when anyone says it. I think being an artist. I think the art is sort of the thing. Like really transforms comics and like. I, <laughs> Anyone listening? I was like, of course. <laughs> yeah. It's like 50% like, of the storytelling. Uh, like, I think that there's a, a one of my favorite. Uh, so, a, a page that I love. This is Kyle Baker did one of those Classics Illustrated. Uh, if any of your listeners have not checked out a lot of the Classics Illustrated, I think people dismissed because they were. I don't want to read Ivanhoe, um, <laughs> but they they got a lot of really great artists. Uh, the Bill Sienkiewicz Moby Dick is up there. One of Bill Sienkiewicz's best books, entirely painted from front to back, uh, oh, wow. and fucking fantastic uh and a real masterclass on how to how to do a book either way uh so kyle baker did i think it's cyrano and there's this scene where cyrano is talking to his the young man christian who um they're both talking about roxanne who cyrano loves and christian um kind of doesn't know but they're so Chris, like she's gonna fall for christian the beautiful fair-faced uh, handsome guy and um you know cyrano uh, commits his soul to help christian win her so Cyrano and Christian are talking and uh, through the course of the conversation, which goes, I think, six panels two, you know, three down, three down. He's sort of saying like, oh, I talked to Roxanne and she's she's in love. She's in love with somebody. And Christi and Cyrano thinks like, oh, it's me. It's just me. And um, then sort of like halfway down, it, the Christian reveals like, oh, no, 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 it's it's me. Um, <laughs> and while this panel is going on, you see Cyrano and you see Cyrano uh, and Christian speaking. And then against the wall, you see their shadows. And when Cyrano believes that she's in love with him, like his 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 shadow is jumping up and hopping and ebullient and just like overjoyed. And then when he finds out it's Christian, it's like he got stabbed in the heart. And um, like none of this is what makes that page is that art. Of course, the words are great. It's Cyrano de Bergerac, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, you know. Which so it's a, this is the two I understand, but like the magic that happens happens with that sort of, and you realize like, oh, I'm not reading it; I'm watching, and the watching is actually informing the way that I read. So, like, I, the thing I love most about sequential art is I love the marriage. Uh, you know, like I love the marriage of it's not just writing. You know, it's also writing, and then you have art, and and uh, I love you know, of art. <laughs> so it's, it's great to see art. Like, you know, you can look at 12 paintings, you're like, oh, these are great. But like, if you look at 12 paintings and they're in a row and they tell a story, then it's this other fantastic thing. Yeah. Boy, what a long, boring answer. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you can keep the next one a little bit shorter then. Jeez. <laughs> what is something about the medium that you dislike? Oh, you know what? That's a good question. Something about the medium that I dislike. All right, you know what? I'll be the bad guy. I'll be the bad guy on Twitter this week. I think a lot of people sort of like, it's just, 
comic books. It's just superheroes. It's just blah, blah, blah. And they allow that as a way to sort of like let themselves off the hook to go further, strive harder, be better, or blah, blah, blah. I think I think there's an outside perception sometimes that you know, like I think that comics is fought against for a long for its entire history of like, you know, we're legitimate and legitimate mm-hmm. things are, are taking place. And I think a lot of people are on the threshold of that and the vanguard of that. And they're like, we're pushing this to make this medium better. But a lot of people are like, hey, I'm just writing Green Lantern. You know, <laughs> this isn't rocket <laughs> science. And I think Green Lantern can be rocket science. And if you're not pushing it to be rocket science, you're not doing your job. And I don't mean this about anybody in particular, Green Lantern writers, in anything. And I think that there's a way in which, like, um, if you're, like, um, you know, if you're X, Y, or Z musician, and you're like, hey, I'm really trying to do something fantastic here. Or if you're just like, ah, we're just a cover band. We don't matter. I don't think that, like, don't be the cover band. Like, like no matter what you're doing, try to, like, like try to make it, give it the seriousness you would give anything else. Yeah. Does that well, make sense? It does. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word that's not actually a curse word? Oh, uh, my favorite curse word that's not actually a curse word. Let's see. Well, I guess I like... <laughs> I guess I like fudge. <laughs> fudge is a good one. Because <laughs> I also think, like, I do you like, like, I'm just going to fudge this. or And then every now and then I will find myself saying, oh, fudge. Uh, and then this is sort of maybe a little... I heard the term fudgebacker you know, in high school, like everyone does. Yeah. And just thought like, what a weird word. And it wasn't until like, I think years later when I was like, oh, that's, that's just disgusting. <laughs> that's just gross. You guys are like, whatever. <laughs> grow up, everyone. Just grow up. Leave it to straight white teenagers to come up with <laughs> No, it was the gay ones. It was, it was always <laughs> the gay ones. You know, like, that's how you don't get caught. You're like, oh, you fudgebackers. No, Jack, let's yes. say there's a heaven. No. You just died by a flying shark attack. Oh, the, exactly the way I want to go. Yeah. You show up at the Pearly Gates and agreed by Jacob Kurtzberg himself. Oh, okay. <laughs> what do you hope he says to you? Um, I hope he says, they buried you with all your things, as was your express wish. <laughs> <laughs> I always yeah. tell people. At my funeral, they buried him with his things. It's what he wanted. I like that Jack Kirby would give, that's like, don't worry. Don't don't worry, sir. All of your knickknacks are in a box with you. Well, I have this, like, I I have a comic, like, I worked at a comic shop when I was a kid, when I was, like, uh, in my teens, and I've collected comics, you know, my whole life. Uh, So I have this, I, I think, I have a great comic collection, not great, like huge or expensive or any of those things, but it's like, it's my, you know, like every comic I think I should have is there. <laughs> and like, you know, sometimes I think like, what will happen when I die? What will happen to these things? Who will come in and be like, you know, like this is a signed Mike Mignola. Uh, and I'm like, well, no one would. And I was like, well, then I just want to be buried with it. Like A, like the Egyptians, I might want it in the next life. <laughs> And B, if no one else is going to appreciate it, I'm taking it with me. You know what? Why not? (laughs) (laughs) And that has been uh, our interview. And Jack, could you please share where people can find you on the social medias? Down a dark corridor (laughs) in a dirty, fog-lit alley. Uh, you can find me, uh, I'm at the villainist. Receptionist, but villain. (laughs) At the villainist on Twitter. 
And I uh, am at Reckless Eyeballs on Instagram. Why not make them the same thing? Wouldn't that be easier? Oh, yeah, it would. I wish I had. <laughs> uh, I was waiting for you to say that because I have a, a, an insight for you. Did you know yes. that Reckless Eyeballs is on Urban Dictionary? I do. Is it about? Well, tell me what it's about. Reckless Eyeballs. Staring at a woman walking down the street or driving in a car for a period of greater than eight seconds. Example, you better stop staring at that hobby over there or you're going to get cited for Reckless Balls. <laughs> that is actually a corruption. It, 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 if you go back further, it is a prison term, like a CO. Like, say you're the, the corrections officer and you're walking by and this guy, he doesn't give you any sass. He doesn't say, like, fuck you. You know, but he's like, he's just cutting you eyes. And you're like, I don't like your attitude. And I can't say, like, he said blah, blah, blah. But I'm just going to give you a demerit for reckless eyeballs. Ooh. And, yeah, I know. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> no i know I, like like uh uh and then i think like so i think the, the term was out there and then like people started picking it up and using it um for whatever Kids. Kids um so that is that is where you can find me grant this was a lot of fun those are great questions i think you did a this is fantastic thank you very much and uh we will chat again we will or will we This has been a Comic Book Yeti production. You can find new episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere podcasts stream. For more information on the Comic Book Yeti, please visit comicbookyeti.com. And for more of Grant, visit grantstoy.com or on Twitter at Grant and Stuff. What's up, everybody? This is Joey Galvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now